I created this podcast not only to share stories of remarkable moral conviction and sacrifice, but also to present an alternative vision from the one presented by an illegitimate authoritarian ruler. This podcast has the advantage of not being bound by the same constraints or incentives that drive news outlets, like the fleeting coverage of the day or the doom and gloom spin that drives ratings. As a result, we're free to explore stories of hope and agency, as informed by the historical context and parallels. We're free to track the incremental progress towards an ultimate prisoner release that can have a transformative impact, opening a more humane chapter for Russia and the world. In this final episode, we'll trace these positive developments and responses brought about by Vladimir's sacrifice and activism, and look ahead to really inhabit the same future Vladimir sees. This is The Price of Conviction, A Tale of Two Vladimirs, Episode 4, Putin's Plan Backfires. If Putin's intention were to silence Vladimir Karamirza by throwing him in prison, he's horribly miscalculated and has produced the exact opposite result of amplifying Vladimir's voice and his cause. By making him an internationally renowned political prisoner and symbol, Putin has rolled out the red carpet for the ever-expanding coalition of advocates behind Vladimir and their regular appearances before massive international audiences in the media, TV, radio, podcasts, newspapers, or at conferences, parliaments, award ceremonies, anywhere and everywhere. In fact, after coming across this podcast, CNN invited me and Vladimir Karamurza's wife, Yevgenia, to speak with Sarah Seidner, the same anchor who interviewed Vladimir just hours before his arrest, devoting our entire segment to his case and recentering his message on a global platform, including the magnitude of its implications for the war in Ukraine and beyond. Joining me now is Evgenia Karamurza. She is the wife of imprisoned Russian opposition politician Vladimir Karamurza, who spoke out live on my show and was jailed in Russia hours later. Also with me is Yona Diamond. He's an international human rights lawyer and the creator of the Price of Conviction podcast and part of Vladimir's advocacy team. Sarah opened with a recap of Vladimir's case. And Yevgenia gave an update on his situation and the anxiety surrounding this uncertain period preceding a perilous transfer to a penal colony. Your husband, Vladimir, was on my show back in April of 2022, and he was being very outspoken uh, about what he thought of the Putin regime and the war in particular. Um, and then he was jailed hours later. He'd already been poisoned twice. He's since been convicted by uh, the Russian courts and sentenced to 25 years. But how is he doing now, both mentally and physically? Vladimir's appeal actually was rejected just a few days ago. So now the next step is the transfer to the strict regime penal colony. We don't know when it's going to happen because, of course, there is no knowing beforehand what might happen and what to expect. He might be transferred tomorrow or in three months. Uh, we only know that this transfer is a very dangerous period in the life of any prisoner, especially political prisoner in the Russian Federation today, because the authorities very often lose um, prisoners during transfer. Evgenia, when you say that, he, that they could be lost, are you worried that your husband may not make it through the, his imprisonment and through this transfer? Absolutely. It turns out the situation's even worse. Vladimir's lawyer in exile, Vadim Prokhorov, just told me that members of the prison's medical staff 
said Vladimir will not survive more than a year and a half or two years in a strict regime penal colony. They also replayed a part of Vladimir's unforgettable last interview, literally amplifying his voice and message before millions of viewers around the world. Yona, I do want to go to what Vladimir told me during our interview. Let's listen to a little bit of the interview we did in 2022 before he was jailed. This regime that is in power in our country today, it's not just corrupt, it's not just kleptocratic, it's not just authoritarian. It is a regime of murderers. And it is important to, to say it out loud. And it, it, is, it, is, it is really tragic, frankly, I have no other word for this, that it took a large-scale war in the middle of Europe, which Vladimir Putin is now conducting against Ukraine, for uh, most Western leaders to finally open their eyes to the true nature of this regime. Why is it that those words scare Vladimir Putin to the point where we, he would jail uh, this person who is simply saying what he thinks about the regime? Those are the exact same things that Yevgenia cited as the evidence that was used against Vladimir, um, pointing out the culture of corruption and criminality and impunity that are the root causes of this war. That is, we would not have a war in Ukraine. We wouldn't have untold destruction on our environment, um, on global food shortages. We wouldn't have Putin sending tens of thousands of Russians and Ukrainians to death if it weren't for his regime and their decisions. And so Vladimir brings this into direct focus. And this is exactly what Vladimir has dedicated his life to standing up against, to holding the Putin regime accountable and to laying the groundwork for democracy in Russia. This latter aspect of actively envisioning and preparing for democracy in Russia is reflected in the second part of Vladimir's answer. I have absolutely no doubt that the Putin regime will end over this war in Ukraine. It doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. The two main questions are time and price. And by price, I do not mean monetary. I mean the price in human blood and in human lives. And it has already been horrendous. But the Putin regime will end over this. And there will be a democratic Russia after Putin. And I think one of the most important things that we all, both we here in Russia and you in the West, should be thinking about right now is about how to rebuild those bridges, how to reintegrate that post-Putin democratic Russia into the international community. Because when that moment comes, it will be too late to start thinking about it. We have to prepare for that future today. I consider myself a fairly experienced public speaker. But as I was stressing over this particular interview to ensure I conveyed the right takeaways in a short soundbite, I realized I didn't have to look any further than Vladimir as a guide. In his last interview, and in just one minute, he manages to perfectly capture the two central tenets of his struggle. One, fighting to hold the Putin regime accountable. And two, preparing for a democratic transition in Russia. And these two themes are directing the very trajectory of this podcast. And then I really understood the brilliance of Vladimir's vision and promise as a political leader. Someone still in control of how this story unfolds more than 500 days into his imprisonment. And the fate of the war in Ukraine also depends on how this story ends and the kind of Russian leadership that emerges. It would be good for her to see Melanie again. Yeah, it's going to be very hard to pull that off uh, with a day's notice. No, you don't, no, I don't mean you just rearrange it. In other words, in the when she's coming to testify. Oh, oh, uh, I yeah, get what you yeah, mean. Yeah, 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 that way. Yeah. Uh, 
Parliamentary committees are open to the public, so if you happen to go to her testimony oh, and then grab her afterwards, that's that's what he means. And I think that's a, a true lobbying, lobbying in its purest uh, <laughs> form. Yeah, you know, that's where the word comes from, right? You know, yeah. waiting in the lobbies, grabbing. Them. Yes. <laughs> All right. Yeah, not a bad suggestion. Here we are in an impromptu meeting with Prof Yevgenia and my colleague Brandon Silver, who's been spearheading our political advocacy for Vladimir. In a car ride on the way to Parliament during Yevgenia's visit to Ottawa in May of this year, on the campaign trail for Vladimir, if you will, strategizing about how to briefly catch Canada's foreign minister, Melanie Jolie, after her hearing. Um, so if you're free, her testimony is 11 to noon. We'll be going in around noon, and uh, if, you, if you go and you, we'll try to catch her in the hallways as she's leaving. Exactly. Yevgenia was specifically there that week to receive an award on Vladimir's behalf speak at a conference, and squeeze in high-level government meetings in between. We were also hosting the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court in Ottawa, so there was a lot going on and opportunities for advocacy. And you know what? That'd be good. The prosecutor will be... So the prosecutor is testifying before the Foreign Affairs Committee uh -huh. with Irwin and other former minister sitting next to him side to side, and mm -hmm. the minister right. will be then crossing rock, paths or she'll be leaving as we're going in. Um, so it'd be good. You could come in. Prior to the VIP reception, see the prosecutor as well, as uh, so I say, you know, we're mm -hmm. supporting your case. And, um, and a quick hello, just to remind the minister, you know, again, everything it. she's That's dealing exactly with. Even just seeing you, it'll remind yeah, her of all that. Uh, and yeah. then I'll uh, always uh, thank her, her for the sanctions. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the sanctions Yevgenia is referring to were a direct result of her last successful meeting with Melanie Jolie and Prime Minister Trudeau in October last year, right after Vladimir was charged with treason. Canada went on to impose a new set of sanctions targeting those specific officials responsible for Vladimir's persecution and others complicit in the spread of disinformation, citing both Yevgenia's visit and Vladimir's example and courage in the official announcements. Liberal International was awarding Vladimir its prize for freedom at their conference of delegates from liberal and progressive parties from around the world. The criteria for the prize not only recognizes the defense of human rights, but also takes into account the degree of protection offered by the award. Quote, warning authoritarian regimes that moves against the laureate will produce protest around the world. And in Prof's words, opening the nomination letter for Vladimir, he also stressed that the prize can provide, quote, life-saving protective cover from further persecution. And in this light, awards are essential to the campaign to free Vladimir by serving the practical function of elevating his profile along with the level of protection that brings. In this regard, another one of the main objectives of this trip was to build momentum and support for Vladimir's honorary citizenship on behalf of the Canadian Parliament. I'm just wondering about... Um is it a good idea for me to speak about honorary citizenship? It's, like, it's not a usual ask. I mean, asking to introduce sanctions against uh, um, perpetrators in Vladimir's case is very natural. Asking uh, to raise awareness in Vladimir's case or just talk about him is quite natural. But just honorary citizenship, it's quite a sort of delicate matter. Do you think it's a good idea? I, I think it's a okay. Good idea for me to just yeah, it's good because to have, I can't even. I, I can push it. I can't even. Oh, uh, I, I don't even know how I would word this. It could be powerful from you saying what it would mean to him. And our campaign worked. A month later, 
Both houses of the Canadian Parliament adopted unanimous resolutions bestowing honorary citizenship on Vladimir Karamurza, becoming the seventh in Canadian history, joining the ranks of Nelson Mandela, Raoul Wallenberg, and Malala Yousafzai. Whereas Russian opposition leader Vladimir Karamurza is facing political persecution in the Russian Federation, including a show trial with high treason charges following his public condemnation of the unjustified and illegal war by Russia against Ukraine, whereas he has survived two assassination attempts by poisoning, including in 2015 and 2017, whereas he, he is currently imprisoned in Russia and his health is failing, whereas he is the recipient of the Vaclav Havel Human Rights Prize awarded by the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, whereas Vladimir Karamurza is a senior fellow to the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Therefore, this House resolves to bestow the title of honorary Canadian citizen on Vladimir Karamurza and demand that the Russian Federation set him free. And for me, what's striking about Yevgenia's campaign in listening to her speeches and interviews, including our own conversations, is that the focus is never only or even primarily on Vladimir's conditions but about the causes he stands for and the thousands of others detained for opposing the war. And so the initiatives being pursued on a daily basis go far beyond seeking Vladimir's release in a prisoner swap, for example. The campaign is literally carrying on Vladimir's work, only this time multiplied exponentially by all the lawyers, journalists, and public figures and officials getting countries to impose targeted sanctions on Russian human rights violators and maintaining the spotlight on Putin's atrocity crimes in Ukraine and censorship and crackdown at home. At first, I didn't fully grasp the strategic value and brilliance of this, but now I realize that by carrying on Vladimir's work, Yevgenia is both demonstrating what true partnership means while actively ensuring that the costs of holding him outweigh the benefits. And that's the ultimate goal of our campaigns for political prisoners to make their imprisonment too costly for the regime in question, politically, economically, and reputationally. In other words, to change the calculus for keeping them in jail. In assembling the material for this episode, I was again taken back to Vladimir's column where he writes about how, quote, all of this has happened before, and we know how it'll end. Aggressive wars launched by Russian and Soviet rulers for domestic political purposes ended up backfiring badly on their masterminds. And it's remarkable how diligently Putin is stepping into the same traps, unquote. But Putin's also falling into the same trap of persecuting Vladimir Karamurza. When he tried poisoning him, it resulted in launching Vladimir's profile to new heights and even translated into the passage of Magnitsky laws. In fact, as Prof recalls, the Magnitsky bill that he tabled as a parliamentarian in Canada languished for years until Nemtsov's assassination and Vladimir's poisonings revived the debate and ultimate unanimous adoption following the second poisoning. It's not perhaps as well known as it deserves to be that uh, Vladimir can be said to be one of the architects of the actual adoption of Magnitsky uh, sanctions. When I first tabled Magnitsky sanction legislation in, in Canada back in 2011, it was Vladimir Karamurza and Boris Nemtsov, then the leader of the Russian Democratic Opposition, who came to Canada and uh, supported that legislation. And then, of course, uh, Boris Nemtsov was assassinated outside the Kremlin in February 2015, which resulted in the Foreign Affairs Committee of Canada convening and holding hearings where Vladimir was the major witness at that point. 
He went back to Russia, was subject to an assassination attempt. Same thing in 2017 when the committee convened again. He was a main witness, went back to Russia, again subjected to an assassination attempt because of his testimony here in Canada. And then as a result of all this, Canada unanimously adopted Magnitsky-sanctioned legislation. And so Vladimir, there's a, a straight line between this case and cause and the adoption of such legislation in Canada. And I can tell you, as somebody who joined with Vladimir before the U.S. Helsinki Commission, uh, before uh, parliaments in Europe, that this was true right across the community of democracies. And so Vladimir then was the symbol in each of these uh, democracies, not only for the adoption and justice of Magnitsky sanctions, but as I said, the symbol uh, really in the embodiment of the struggle for human rights and democracy in Russia and for the condemnation of Russia's crime of aggression in Ukraine. Prof has been a key figure in the development of a special tribunal to prosecute the crime of aggression in Ukraine since the start. And he added that Vladimir's persecution also moved this mechanism forward, which gets at the heart of culpability for all the destruction unleashed by Putin's invasion. After all, this is a model of accountability backed within Russia by a leader of the opposition. So when you uh, look at uh, the situation, and I say this as somebody that's you know, involved now in seeking to establish with my colleagues an independent tribunal for the crime of aggression in Ukraine, his imprisonment has enhanced and amplified the calls also for that uh, international tribunal. And the poetic justice of it all continued during Vladimir's prosecution, when our team lobbied countries to use the very same targeted Magnitsky sanctions that Vladimir helped get passed against his own persecutors. The use of targeted sanctions against human rights abusers in Russia or elsewhere is really a revolutionary accountability tool allowing outside countries to impose real costs on these individuals for their crimes by jeopardizing their money, property, and travels abroad when they'd otherwise be insulated from any repercussions within the country. And so uh, I've traveled with the Evgenia to Washington, to Ottawa, to Brussels, to London. Again, here's Bill Browder, best-selling author, head of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign, and good friend of Vladimir's. Uh, making the case to different governments around the world to use the Magnitsky Act. And, and uh, Canada was the first country to do it in November of last year sanctioning nine individuals who were involved in Vladimir's persecution. The United States followed suit in March of this year with um, six individuals. And then uh, a week after Vladimir was sentenced, the UK sanctioned uh, five individuals who were involved in his persecution. And in July, when Vladimir's appeal was rejected, the UK sanctioned six additional individuals. The list includes judges, prosecutors, investigators, and FSB agents involved in his poisoning. And throughout Vladimir's trial, he was at the mercy of three individuals already sanctioned, the presiding judge, head of his prison, and deputy justice minister who oversaw the prosecution. Even more significantly, in July, the EU imposed sanctions on 12 individuals and five entities responsible for serious human rights violations in Russia, citing the, quote, politically motivated rulings against the opposition politicians, democracy activists, and outspoken Kremlin critics Alexei Navalny and Vladimir Karamurza. To get a better idea of how targeted sanctions can have an impact, I spoke with Anton Moisenko, a world-leading sanctions expert who recently led the first empirical study on this very issue. 
I've been doing research on economic crime and sanctions for quite a while. In fact, I did my PhD on the legal aspects of Magnitsky sanctions. Anton was careful to manage expectations about what targeted sanctions can actually accomplish. They may not secure the immediate changes we're hoping for, especially when the targeted individual doesn't have any assets in the sanctioning country or plans to travel there. But even in these cases, targeted sanctions play a critical role in starting the process of bringing these perpetrators to justice by officially marking them with the stigma of corruption and criminality that follows them around the world into the future. The documentation of the suspects and their crimes today can serve as the basis for transitional justice tomorrow, even within Russia under a new government. The question really is, what are the ways that we have for now in order to try and impact their behavior to some extent or bring some measure of accountability? And that information is out there in the public domain. Um, and those sanctions are going to stay in place for as long as we think it is necessary to ensure some modicum of accountability. And so those sanctions really create a record and a signal that ongoing condemnation and then maybe with time they can lead to some uh, law enforcement action at home when circumstances change. Given the critical state of Vladimir's health as a result of the poisonings, time is now of the essence. And so the strategy has adapted to ensure he's included in any prospective prisoner swap with Russia. Well, I think the most important thing about the current sanctions um, that have been imposed against Vladimir's persecutors is that it's a very strong signal from the countries that have imposed those sanctions to, to Russia that Vladimir is important and that, that we want to make sure he stays alive and that we want him back. We want him back in a swap or whatever form that will take. And um, by, by elevating his importance, by sanctioning those who have done terrible things to him, um, that, that improves the probability that he survives and that improves the probability that he's swapped. I think there's, there's going to be a moment when Putin says, I want somebody back from the West and I understand that you want Vladimir back. I'm ready to do a trade. And I want to make sure that Vladimir is included in that grand bargain. And that also means directing pressure on outside states to prioritize his case in such negotiations, particularly the UK, where he's a citizen, or the US, where he's a permanent resident. Throughout my own involvement in these broader accountability efforts, I've wondered whether the international sanctions and pressure might ultimately work to influence the elites closest to Putin to turn against him or to at least try to convince him to end the war. So I spoke with Sasha de Vogel, a political scientist specializing in authoritarian politics and collective action in Russia and the post-Soviet region, to gain clarity on how the system works internally. Every autocrat needs the support of the elites to remain in power. The elites being the people who control the economy in Russia, that would be the oligarchs, the elites who control the military, and the elites who control the government. Russia under Putin has what we would call a personalist dictatorship, where dictatorial power is entirely invested in the person of Putin. So even in these systems, you still need support of the elites, but Putin has actually been very clever in ensuring that sort of he is the spoke at the center of the wheel of elites, and they have relatively little ability to collaborate with each other. Putin is kind of like the guarantor of your position as an elite, your position in business, if you're an oligarch, in government, if you're in government, um, and that determines your access to corruption and additional income and your access to power. You depend on Putin to keep that position. Um, it's not to your benefit to collaborate with other people against Putin because he can just remove you 
and because everybody is all of the elites are competing for Putin's for access to Putin for his favor, they have uh, little incentive to collaborate with someone who is moving against him. So the sanctions, while making their lives hard and making them feel frustrated with what's going on, are not really going to force them to withdraw their support from Putin in general because they have no alternative. But even if they wanted to leave, they can't really defect because they will probably be um, assassinated or at least live in fear of that for a very long time. So the sanctions, while making their lives difficult and perhaps leading them to put pressure on Putin to sort of maybe change a few policies, they're not going to cause the regime to collapse. The prospects of grassroots protests in Russia bringing about an end to the war or a change in government anytime soon appear even bleaker, especially given the complete wartime crackdown on any trace of anti-war sentiment. Within sort of two, three weeks, we really saw a total collapse of anti-war protests. Since then, what we've seen um, are more sort of individualized protests that sort of express a person's personal anti-war sentiment. So things like graffitiing or holding up a sign as a single person. We've seen some cases of arson, actually. But all of these individualized expressive efforts, although they take a lot of courage on behalf of the people who are engaging in those acts, they don't really have the capacity to affect politics. These are not part of a movement, uh, organized effort to affect what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And there really is no organization or sort of I mean, apparatus or even kind of network in Russia right now that could organize those um, individual expressive actions into a movement. But Sasha made the important point of putting anti-war protest into perspective when viewed against the immensity of the challenge, even in democracies, of mounting successful protest to end a war. The war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, these did not end because of popular protests. At the same time, this reality further underlines the power and courage behind lone acts of resistance like Vladimir's and the necessity of using the freedom we have outside of Russia to increase the attention, pressure, and support for their cases and causes they embody to end the war and bring about democratic governance in Russia. I'll admit, though, it's easy to get discouraged in political prisoner advocacy or any activism for systemic change when the victories are not always forthcoming so I asked Prof a personal question I've been meaning to ask him throughout my five years at the center. What is it that keeps you going? And the answer can only come from someone who's witnessed historical progress up close, who's played a key role in monumental justice movements and never forgets their culmination, moral truths, and yes, the release of political prisoners that transforms our world into a better place. Look, Nelson Mandela endured 27 years in a South African prison. Prof served as a member of Mandela's international legal advocacy team. And then emerged to not only preside over the dismantling of apartheid, but to become the first president of a democratic, free, egalitarian South Africa. So Nelson Mandela was the personification of the struggle for democracy and the end of apartheid. And it was even worse at the time, because in Canada and in other democracies, it's forgotten. Mandela was thought of as being a terrorist. He was on the official terrorist list in Canada, let alone not being thought of as a leader of the democracy movement. And so our entire advocacy with regard to Mandela changed the international uh, perception. And I was just a cameo. And then in the end of the day, Mandela brought about a free and democratic South Africa. And the inspiration that set in motion his chosen path came early on when Prof was a law student. 
quite interesting that you asked me this question because this weekend is the 60th anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, okay? As a law student, I was then in Washington. I was then the editor-in-chief of the McGill Daily, and so I was in Washington for that speech because I was the editor of one of the oldest newspapers you know, in the Commonwealth. So I was given a kind of front row seat. and had a, It had a transformative impact on me. Again, it got embedded in my soul. And so I always remembered also Martin Luther King's, not only I have a dream, I have a dream also about the release of political prisoners, but something else that he said, that the arc of history may be long, but it ultimately bends towards justice. And so what we have to do is we have to work to bend that arc towards justice. And that's why we cannot relent in our pursuit of justice. And we cannot relent in our pursuit of the freedom of political prisoners. And so we can't relent in our pursuit of uh, Vladimir Karamir's uh, release, not only so that as a prisoner he does not feel alone, but as a prisoner he knows that ultimately that release may be brought about. It was brought about in the case of Sharansky. It was brought about in the case of uh, Mandela. I can go on to other political prisoners we've been involved in. They did get released. And the theory of change here is about getting Vladimir released. But it's also something bigger than that. It's worth investing in because you're not only investing in the individual, you're investing in a cause. And when you invest in a cause, that cause may itself be uh, realized uh, in the release of the individual. For more information and to get involved, go to priceofconviction.com and consider making a contribution to our center. We depend on the generosity of our supporters to continue doing this advocacy for Vladimir and other political prisoners like him and the causes they stand for.